Hello, I'm Annie Ridout, author, journalist, poet, and host of this podcast, Home. Today I'm speaking with Caro Giles. Caro is a writer based in Northumberland. She writes honestly about what it means to be a woman, a mother, and a carer, and about the value in taking the road less travelled. Her writing has appeared in journals, press and periodicals, and she was named BBC Countryfile's New Nature Writer of the Year in 2021. She writes a regular column for Psychology's magazine, and her debut book, Twelve Moons, was published by Harper North earlier this year. Hello, Caro, and welcome to Home Podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I was just explaining to you before we started recording that today I have a child at home with me who is finding school very difficult. And your beautiful book, 12 Moons, A Year Under a Shared Sky, is about you and your life and home and also um, having three of your four daughters at home with you and you home educate them. So I'd love to go deep on that um, shortly. But to start, I would love to know where you were born and raised and what your upbringing was like. Okay, Um, so I had, I feel, a fairly traditional childhood and upbringing. But when I think about home um, and my experience of trying to feel at home, I think about just before I was born and um, the itinerant nature of lots of my ancestors and also of my parents just before I was born. So on my um, paternal side of the family, my uh, granddad was in the Navy and my and he and my dad lived all over the world in New Zealand and India and all of that. And then on my mum's side of the family, going a bit further back, her family were... Um, were Methodists who traveled to China and um, Pacific Islands um, to preach. And so, so I feel like in my, in my veins, I have, um, I have this thing I call itchy feet, which means I find it quite hard to settle. Um, And I was actually conceived in New Zealand. So when I was in my mum's womb, I was traveling around the world before they came back to settle in England. So that's kind of the precursor to to my fairly traditional upbringing. Mm. Um, But my my parents came back from New Zealand and um, while my mum was pregnant with me, they lived in Derbyshire, which is where my my mum's family are from. And then mum and dad settled in Northampton, in a little village near Northampton. And everything was very kind of traditional. Uh, My dad went out to work. My mum had me um, and stopped working while I was a baby and then had another baby. And then we moved down to Devon, uh, which is where my dad's family are from. And we lived in a little cottage in a tiny village there. And two more siblings were born. Um, My dad continued to go out to work. And my mum continued to care for us, but eventually went back into her role as a nurse and then um, worked in fairly um, kind of quite high power positions within the nursing profession, actually, until she retired. But um, when we were little, everything was very much a mother, a father and the children at home and then the children going to school. Um, So we lived in Devon for a bit and then um, we moved north, um, partly because there were lots of us in a tiny cottage and we needed somewhere bigger to live. And the, at that point in the 1980s, like the house market had gone crazy and prices were ballooning. And so mum and dad were kind of chasing 
chasing the cheaper houses and they had to keep going further and further north because the the market kept um, growing and growing. And so um, we ended up in North Yorkshire. And and I, I look back now and think um, I, I none of those childhood places really feel like home to me because I started off in Northampton, moved when I was three to Devon, moved again when I was 11 to Yorkshire and then stayed in Yorkshire until I left home. And all of those homes were very stable. And um, I saw lots of extended family at that time as well. Both my parents were around. Um, but but if I think now, none of that, I don't feel drawn to any of those places in a way that I know lots of people do feel drawn to a place that they come from. If someone asks me where I'm from, I don't know what to say. I don't know where I come from, really. And that's what I talk about a little bit when I think about having itchy feet. I don't know. Um, I don't feel drawn to a place to to settle and stay there forever. Um, so I went to secondary school in North Yorkshire. And then, yeah, I was there until I was just 18. And then I couldn't wait to leave home. I was desperate to move to the city. Um, and I went to drama school um, and then lived in London until I had my own family. So, yeah, kind of a little bit all over the place, but certainly my upbringing was was very traditional. And what took you to London specifically? Um, so I was at drama school in Guildford um, because that was the drama school that I got into and it was really um, competitive to get into drama school. I'd wanted to be in London, but Guildford was OK and it was close to London. But I always, always wanted to live in the city. And that was where all the auditions were. Um, and so I think I lived in Guildford for a year after I graduated, but then I soon met the person who had become my husband um, when I was performing at the Edinburgh Festival and he lived in London and so did lots of his kind of creative friends um, and we formed an arts collective and that was in London and that yeah that's how I ended up there and then I stayed there for as, lo as long as I could really um, and I, I still miss London now. How do you feel about London when you think of home the idea of home? Yeah, I've kind of it kind I went back to London last week to do some work and it's really rare when I do that and even more rare to be without my children. And yeah, I, f I feel very comfortable in London. I think there's something about I wonder whether I I started to lose myself. I I write in 12 moons about losing myself, like kind of losing myself in my relationship and losing myself behind the the mask of motherhood and all of that. And I wonder whether London was the place where I started to to lose sight of myself because when I go back there I feel I feel really at home with myself um and there's maybe something as well about the anonymity of being in a big city and the freedom to kind of try on different faces and different characters and different you know different parts of yourself that I, I really love about being in London um yeah I also am very a very social person, a very extrovert person. We'll probably come on to to that, like like the challenges that this current lifestyle affords me. Um, but yeah, so you know, being around lots of people, having the opportunity to meet to meet new people, that's something that really fires up my creative energy and um, yeah, makes me feel really good about myself as well. Connecting with other people. So, I guess thinking about it, perhaps L London 
is is a place that maybe feels feels like a home but because it's so far removed from what I'll ever be able to achieve in terms of you know I can never afford to live there my children could never manage to live there maybe I kind of bury that bit deep inside me so I don't tempt myself with what might Mm. be so what took you away from London so what took me away from London was um I had a baby um I was working as a teacher and I had a baby and so I I think when you when you have a a baby um I was one of the first people in my in our friendship group to have a baby as well so that was quite lonely in that I went from going working really really hard and then I was DJing at night and I was um, going to club nights and I was, you know, like really like burning the candle at both ends. I went from that to having a baby that never slept and mm. my family being hundreds of miles away. Um, our friends didn't really have babies. And then our very, very good friends started to move, started to emigrate, move to America. So it felt like I, f- I felt really isolated. And I think if I look back now, I think perhaps my mental health wasn't brilliant after I had my first daughter. Um, I had postnatal OCD and uh, my child never, ever slept. And it later, you know, I understand now why she never slept. Like she had loads of sensory needs that I didn't understand at the time. But, you know, I didn't know that then. So it was hard to be in London. I didn't have a clue what it meant in terms of my work. I assumed I just would go back to work, everything would be fine. And I did go back to work part-time, but the reality of going back to work when you've got a child who doesn't sleep and the reality of going back to work part-time as well and kind of the understand, you know, people would say, oh, what are you doing on your days off? I hated it when people said that because it never was a day off. It was a day when I was trying to kind of come to terms with being a mother and, you know, care for a child that had high needs um so that was all tricky and then my husband um lost his job and so financially stuff was hard and I think I just felt I think I felt like I needed to be near my own mum um and so we moved back to the northeast I got a full-time job working at a special needs school in County Durham and we moved back to the northeast and I think almost immediately that felt like a like a bad decision oh really Um, Yeah, I think I write about it a little bit in my book, just how I thought we'd moved from this tiny flat that had mice in it, and it was a bit grim, to a really beautiful rented um, house that cost less than the flat we'd had in London, and it had a beautiful garden, and I had a little girl that could run in the garden. So, you know, it seemed like, oh, this is going to be wonderful. Um, But the reality was I just felt like, I didn't fit in the culturally there was not much happening um I didn't really have any friends there my mum in fairness to her still was working full time so it wasn't a situation where mum was coming and um being with me and the baby you know she was wonderful but she she had her own life and I didn't expect that of her either so I think what I thought was going to be waiting for me when I returned back to the northeast was just a dream really um and also the the reality of working full time while I had a baby was hard as well. So I was the main breadwinner, um, which suited my kind of ambitions. I I was keen to have a career, um, but also it's, I found it hard to to leave my daughter. Um, 
so yeah so that's how we let how we left London and and there's the other financial thing as as well of you know once you leave London really you can't go back once you once your once your lifestyle is in a cheaper part of the country it's really hard isn't it to get back at, at that stage on the ladder um so yeah in hindsight there were lots of things I'd do differently but at the time I think I was guided by feeling really really isolated and vulnerable following the birth of my daughter and so that's how I have come to make my home in the northeast and did you said you were in London and you felt isolated your friends weren't having um, babies yet I can relate I think you were 28 when you had your eldest yeah, Is that 20, right? yeah 29 yeah 29 um <laughs> I and I was 29 just uh, uh, Yes, past midnight into my uh, the day after my birthday, um, and yeah, my friends didn't have babies, and uh, but I did have my mum there, and that's what did help me. You said you you wanted to be closest to your mum, so even though she was working full time, did yeah. you have that sense of being closer to your mum, and so some kind of feeling that some sense of home from that connection. Um, so my parents were now living in a different house. So there wasn't the actual physical home that I'd grown up in, but I guess there was the la- the landscape was similar, although we were I was about 15 miles away from where I'd I'd grown up still. Um and I I don't think I did feel I don't think I did feel that sense of home. I think I felt I think I'd never felt that sense of home when I lived there as a teenager, and I didn't I didn't feel it when I came back either. I think I felt like I'd like I had let myself down a bit I'd wanted to go away and have grand adventures and I had found myself back in the northeast and I'm being and I know now I was being hard on myself like I'd come back and I was head of music at a really challenging special needs school I was raising a child you know I was I was winning in so many ways but at the time to me I felt I think like I'd taken a step backwards and I didn't know how to move forwards from that. Um, and how do you feel now about where you live and, and this life with your daughters? OK, so now um, I don't live in County Durham. Now I live in Northumberland and I moved up to Northumberland with my ex-husband and we had three children at the time. And certainly I'm happier in this beautiful landscape. I felt very land. I was landlocked where I lived in um, County Durham and I found that difficult where I live now in coastal Northumberland the skies feel wider and the opportunities feel greater because I can see um you know I look out to sea and I feel like the world is waiting there for me Mm. um so I love that but I intended to live here with my ex-husband and our family and to raise our family here and so um, the reality of being a single parent with now I have four children with four children in a little town on the edge of the country is something that I continue to learn to try to come to terms with because I always thought this this was going to be a different kind of dream I guess um, and there's something about being a single woman living in a tiny town with many children um some of whom have complex needs that is it that is a real challenge you know it's hard for me to it's hard for me to connect with people um and so so yeah it's um it, it hasn't really been a, a it hasn't been a lifestyle choice I guess I feel like lots of my choices have been stripped away I didn't choose to for my marriage to end well I you know I made the choice to end end the marriage but I didn't think that that was what it was going to be like when I had four kids um I didn't 
I, we were looking at moving to a city before we split up, all that stuff. So it's just been um, a lesson to me in compromise and in learning to reframe my dreams, I guess. And and now it feels like I'm able to frame that positively, but certainly for a while, it was a challenge, you know, to come to terms with what my life looked like. Mm. I find it so interesting in your book because I hear how difficult it is to raise four children as a single mother in the place that you're living, um, particularly as you have three of them at home, you're homeschooling and we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but then there's this other side to it, which I sort of see, and it's it's more what I felt throughout your whole book. I felt there was a beauty to it as well. I can see that it's hard and it also looks quite beautiful and connected and you seem like the most loving mother and you just get your daughters in this most sort of um, amazing way. And then you go on towards the end of the book to say that a therapist once described um, your home life as like little women. And that mm. was the greatest compliment to you. And I think that's the kind of image I have had in my head. I, I had in my head as I read your book. So it's it feels like there are sort of two sides to it or two perceptions. Yeah, I think... I mean, it is, I'm very lucky. I'm very, very lucky that I have four daughters who, uh, and we're like a tribe, you know, we're we're close together, um, partly because, partly because of the things that have been difficult in our life. Um, but for, I mean, I think probably the, the, the challenges that I face in my life are the fact that the systems that, I require to support my kids with their education and with their health needs are not there, they're broken. So I'm constantly fighting with those systems. I guess that would be the same wherever I live. Yeah. Um, the other, th and the other thing that is difficult is that my children's need is to be somewhere that is quiet and that feels safe to them. And that is not very, very busy. And, and often their need is to, and, and where I see them being freest and being most themselves is when they're outside on the beach. So that for me is is a real gift that I can know I can take them to the sea and know that that they will feel able to be themselves. Where so often in in society, you know, in the sh in shops, in education, in leisure centres, in soft plays, all those places, that's that's not a, they're not comfortable places for my children. So. In, in that regard, I'm very grateful to Northumberland because Northumberland has enabled my kids to know that there's somewhere that they can be themselves, where they can be heard and where they can be seen and where they don't have to mask constantly at a cost to their own health. Mm. But on the flip side of that, um, I feel like I've really compromised myself. And I guess that comes with, with motherhood, doesn't it? You know, you have children and your your the options open to you are very very different okay professionally or financially whatever that I I get that I guess that's heightened for me because I have so many children and because mm -hmm. I'm the only only grown up and because um because my children have needs that can't be met within mainstream systems so I guess it's like a kind of a a, a big it's like a big cauldron frothing full of full of problems that have problems that have led me to places that I didn't know that that offer me beauty so you know being on the beach I'm not sure that I would have have started writing if my life had looked somehow easier and more straightforward and writing feels like uh you know a real creative 
joy for me. Um, so I, I guess lots of good things have come out of out of the bad things, but ultimately, um, Northumberland only really feels like my home because it is my children's home, and because it's because they are they feel safe when they're here. Um, does that make sense? It yeah, it makes complete sense. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think they've been two of them particularly have been so poorly that um, that it just I just sometimes wake up and I'm grateful that they can just be you know just be on the beach and and just like put their toes in the water some you know I'm I'm grateful for that because sometimes I have a child who can't speak I've had a child um as I've written about in the book who was you know horribly psychotic and um you know everything shifts when when your child is very poorly and and things seem to matter less so I guess when I have the luxury of feeling like I don't fit in or that I am not at home, it might be because my kids are a little bit better because I'm I'm very, very grateful for this home when, you know, during moments of hardship. So mm. it's um yeah, it's a kind of it's a it's a it's a funny mixture of 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 beautiful and awful, <laughs> I think. And um, you wrote you wrote in your book that uh, friends have said you seem distant and that you isolate yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said that you don't know how not to do that and I wonder how you feel in that uh, isolation is that something that you are are you feeling isolated and are you learning how to to cope with that that feeling um yeah I do feel isolated and I don't think I feel lonely anymore because um, I'm used to being on my own but I feel like I'm missing out a bit sometimes so um like I haven't I've never been on a date since since my marriage ended that's like five nearly six years ago um for a long time that was because I didn't feel able to to be with anybody but now I would like that and now I don't know how to achieve that and so I kind of worry that I'm going to miss the boat with that that feels quite hard but also in terms of feeling like I hide myself away. I think I think what happens is that on a day-to-day level, I have to um, assert myself and defend my parenting and advocate for my children in a way that feels very toxic and damaging. Um, and I think, and I, I often have not been believed. And so I think that has made me a little bit timid in terms of putting myself out there with friends as well which is sad because I have many lovely friends who are understanding and want to listen and want to understand what my personal situation is as a, as a carer but I think the reality is that when you are told again and again that you are wrong or that your reality is something different or that you are um you should be fitting in or you should be doing things differently or your your parent there's something wrong with your parenting um I I think that that makes you reluctant to open yourself up to people a- across your life, you know? And so I, I think that that has, has affected me as well. Um, so that's something I probably need to address, but right at the moment, I'm still in the thick of um, assessments and tribunals and all of that. So I, I think it's kind of a self-preservation thing, to be honest, the being hidden away as well, as much as the fact that I can't actually leave the house very easily. Mm. Um how did you make the decision to home educate? I ask 
because I have a child at home today who's finding school very hard and the school are trying to help us, but I don't know if it's going to work. Um, and I have homeschooled briefly, uh, my elder two, um, but then my one of my children wanted to go back. She's very sociable and wanted to be in the school environment to make friends. And it's sort of working for her. Um, I wondered how you made the decision to home educate three of your maybe you home educated them all and, and one wanted to go back to school. Yeah. But, but um, also, as, as well as how you made the decision, I'd love to know how you feel about the possible open endedness of homeschooling. Yeah. Um, so at the beginning of our education journey, my oldest child went to school, as I wrote about in the book, and then school kind of broke her. She became like a shadow. And so I took the decision to deregister her. And then really, as the kids were all tiny, they were they all were home educated for a while while I was still married um and I liked the ethos of that I think that children in this country go to school very young um uh we were living in Northumberland we I think children in this country are inside a lot um so there were things that there were you know it's kind of a it was a choice at that stage it's what they call electively home educating that was what I was doing then and then when my marriage ended, I knew I would need to work more. So then I looked for a school for my children that best fitted the ethos that we had established at home. And the kids started going to school part time for a bit, which was a really lovely option, which isn't available to lots of people, but worth investigating um, for people who are con- you know, considering trying to, to manage that. Um, yeah. And then the pandemic hit, so it all went a bit pear shaped. But um where I am now is I have three children who can't attend school and so I'm forever arguing that there is nothing elective about what I'm doing because um, there is no appropriate provision for those children that are unable to to attend school so I have one child who does go to school Um, that's fine that's one thing Um, I have another child who learns at home Um, she has an EHCP which is an education healthcare plan And she has a budget funded by the local authority to learn at home because there's no appropriate provision for her elsewhere. So the local special school wasn't appropriate. She can't attend the mainstream school. And so she learns at home. Um, Then the next daughter goes to school. And then the next daughter after that learns at home. She's poorly at the moment. And I'm she's the one I'm going to a tribunal for to try and get an education health care plan. She has had no um, funded education for two years um, so that's obviously a national disgrace that I um, talk about frequently and I'm currently writing about. And then the, the littlest one is at home <clears throat> because she started to show similar signs of school anxiety. And the head teacher said to me, really, um, I don't think you have many options here. Either we keep trying to, to help her come into school and we see the same thing happen again with this daughter or you deregister her from school and you electively home educate her. So I am electively, in inverted commas, home educating that one, but only because she also appeared at the moment not to be fitting into the mainstream school model. So um, again, that's another thing where I feel like choice has been taken away from me um, and I was left with no other option other than to have the children at home to make sure that I could keep them as well as possible because the school system was just causing them to become so poorly. Um, so I guess that's my um, situation at the moment. But in terms of where I see it going in the future, um, with the two who've been poorly, um, I just only want for them to stay well. And so I have shifted my 
I've shifted what I thought my children would do and who they would be and what their lives would look like. And I think that's the case for many parents whose um, you know, children receive diagnosis of developmental disorders or have other complex needs, whatever. Like I, I just I, I just want them to be well and I want them to be heard. Um, and that is what they've not had for a chunk of their childhoods. Um, and so if if I I'm frustrated by the fact that I can't go out to work, I'm frustrated by the fact I have to grab an hour in the morning to try and build a a writing career I'm frustrated by all of that and I'm angry about all of that but the only way I know to to live with that and to kind of uh, make peace with that is to use my writing to raise awareness of of our life because my life is replicated around the country by parents whose children don't fit into the school system um so yeah I try to use my creativity to you know to to make the best of a situation that is is really you know like a massive failing of our of our government sorry to get political mm. but it comes it comes down to what it comes down to <laughs> yeah 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 um so do do you for the the you've got one daughter who there's some funding to help with her education yeah do you is it all down to you are you teaching her or do you have other people come in and help uh, no, so fun, that funds um, a couple of external people. Um, I think I'm always told my children are particularly complex because they can't access anything on offer. Like um, there's a thing called EOTAS, which is education other than at school, which is when tutors come to your house or like they meet at a centre, like a library or something. Um, so my daughter's never been able to access that. So she has like movement lessons and she does some Spanish and then she does an online course as well. But that's essentially though, the challenge, the challenge is that every year you have to demonstrate progress. Otherwise the money might get taken away. Also the money stops at the age of 18 anyway, unless you make an application for, for more. I've only just discovered that. I thought it would carry on until she was 25 because of her needs, but I've been told now, no, that's not the case. She must be working, doing such and such full time. I mean, the criteria is ridiculous. My That oldest daughter needs extra time to process stuff. So she would do a part-time course, but it would take her, it would take her, you know, much longer. Um, and I'm told that's not sufficient. She should be doing a full-time course. Well, if she could do a full-time course, then we probably wouldn't be where we are with the EHCP. So, mm. yeah, it's just a yeah, it's just a case of constantly trying to trying to prove that that we're entitled to to things. And um, it, yeah, it's a fight. It's a bit of a fight. But I have to with the with the other two children. I do do all the education, um, and that's tricky. But we do lots of project-based learning so that because they're really, really different, the youngest two. One of them's full of beans, the other one's really quiet. Um, one of them needs to have lots of time on their own, the other one needs to be out running around a lot. So we do lots of project-based stuff, which means I can try and meet their needs within one topic area, but they do different things. Um, we do what people would probably call unschooling, um, which is where it's kind of very play-led and led by the children. So we do have lots of conversation. We do lots of music. I'm a music teacher, so that's handy. We're outside a lot. Um, I am because I'm a trained teacher. When I have to fill the form in to say exactly what my kids have been doing, I'm able to refer to learning objectives and things like that and write down plans because I've done that. Essentially, though, it's quite free reign what we do. 
Um, and I don't measure their progress in the same way that a school would, but I measure their progress in the way that they are very engaged with their learning and in the way that they are, um, their mental health is being supported, you know. Um, I, I just feel that I know from experience that if a child is not well, a child can't learn. So yes. yeah, it's all about just trying to trying to keep them well, really. Absolutely. How do you feel about the physical home that you live in now? So I'm really lucky. I've just moved house into a slightly bigger house. Um, and so I'm still coming to terms with this space at the moment. So at the moment I'm sitting in my bedroom and one of the, really the only thing I knew I would miss about my old house. I used to put pictures up on Instagram and stuff of my, of my lovely landing where my desk was. And I, it's where I wrote my book and I could see the sky. There was like a big window there overlooking the back lane. And I knew that would be the only space in the house I'd miss. And I do miss it. But where I'm sitting now is looking out of the window. I have to always be sitting near a window when I'm writing. And I'm just getting used to that new view. Um, but at the top of the house, we can see the sea. And that's super exciting. So we're about three miles from the sea. But you can just can see a strip oh. of, of, of um, water from where the little two sleep up in the loft. So, yeah, so it's strange, though, because our last house was just on this on the next street. And so if we came out of the back door onto the back lane of our old house and just walked over the back lane, then our new house is that door is that door there. And that was a whole interesting experience as well, because I really wanted I would really have loved to move to a city um, for my own kind of selfish gain, I guess. And also one of my daughters really likes to be um, busy and in the city as well. But because um, of my children's neurodivergency and their need to have keep things very much the same and to feel very safe, I knew that we were going to have to stay in this town where I live now. And I knew ideally that I would need to stay near our allotment, which is just across the road where my oldest daughter has her frogs. And that is like her safe space. Those frogs are really um, something that keep her really grounded and make her feel like she'll, if, she, if she's feeling anxious, she'll go up to the pond and be with her frogs. So I knew I needed to try and find a house that would be near the bloody frogs, um, <laughs> which, which only meant there was a tiny, tiny, there was only a few streets. And um, what, where are, her, are, her, are they in a pond? Yeah, they're in a pond. She dug a pond and built a pond herself. And now she had the second the second year we had it, then some frogs came and lived there. It's so cool. She loves them. And they just so, say them. Yeah, they're, well, they're hibernating now, but the fro- with the, they live under like a, a thing of a big piece of wood that's next to the pond and we lift a bit of wood up and then all the frogs are there and then they've all got names they're really great but yeah they've gone gone away for the winter now but hopefully they come back next year so um yeah anyway so we only had like a tiny few number of streets that we could could have lived on and you'll imagine that since lockdown coastal Northumberland's become very desirable people wanting holiday homes or second homes so house prices have gone a bit crazy so I had to find a house for the same price of my old house that was bigger Anyway, so I managed to find this house. I feel super, super lucky um, that I've got enough space for all my children in this home. And it's been kind of a reset as well, because the last house was where my marriage ended. And there was still, you know, the ghost of that was still floating around, I think. So whilst a couple of the kids really wanted to stay there, one of my other daughters still could feel that sadness sometimes in that house. And so it has felt like an opportunity to to start again um but it still is a process for those children of mine who need the same because they still miss what they had in the old house they miss 
um, you know, like the shapes of in the wallpaper on the walls and they miss the smells and like, you know, very visceral kind of sensory things that that made them feel safe. When we moved into this house, they really noticed that it smelled different, that it felt different, that the light fell differently in different places. Um, so more so perhaps than with other families, this house move has been like a real, has had to be very carefully planned in order to try and try and meet my children's needs. The cat was crucial. Um, on the day of the house move, three of the kids were with their father, but my oldest daughter was with me and she just held the cat and came and lay on a bed in this bedroom, that's my bedroom. And I just said, can you look after the cat today? And so that was her job. And she knew if she could keep the cat safe in the new house and the cat got used to the new house and maybe she could be safe as well. So, you know, oh, it's wow. been, um, yeah, and it worked actually. But yeah, they're still coming to terms with it. But I um, love the house, but still feel like, what am I doing in Cumberland <laughs> on my own? And will I be like a lonely old, lonely old woman when I'm 90? I don't know. I have to try not to project too far into the future, you know, but sometimes I just think, um, yeah, I don't know how my life will pan out. I don't know how I ended up here and I don't know how it will pan out. <laughs> so that was going to be my my final question will you always be there but as we've spoken I hear that you're called to the city sometimes Mm. and also that right now you're prioritizing your daughters and you feel that they need to be where you are will will there come a time do you think where you get to decide where you are for yourself um so actually going back to one of your other questions where you were talking about friends and things one of the ways I think i I managed that. And one of the things that was great about lockdown was that I made new friends because everything came online. And so for me, my world opened up massively then because everybody was in the same position as me. And so like I met my writing group um, during lockdown and I was doing an online masters. And so very, very occasionally I would just get like a breath of the city and that will, that will be enough to sustain me for a while. Um, And those friends that I've met, that live all over the place uh you know that that's a, their lovely relationships as well and so that's kind of filled a gap that I, I feel was missing for me um but I, d- I don't know what will happen in the future because my children are still going through like assessments and diagnoses I don't know I think they will need they, they won't be independent until maybe a little bit older than other children but I can't know that still because um you know, things ebb and flow. Um, I know that my oldest daughter wants to be here forever and I don't imagine a time when I'm not near her, but also, you know, she might change as well and her, what she wants to do might change. I joke that we will, that my, that my next book will be a bestseller. I joke, but like hope as well. And then, um, <laughs> and that I will be able to buy a house in Cambridge and mm. like, you know, wear red lipstick and ride around on a bicycle and just be, you know, really brainy and fun. That's my dream. I love going to Cambridge and the girls love going to Cambridge as well. And they're always like, mummy, when are we, you know, when are we getting the house in Cambridge? But, you know, that's the dream, isn't it? So I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine a time when I'm not a mother still because I'm so still like deep in the deep in the mothering. Yeah. But I think if there ever comes a time when my children don't need me in the way that they need me now, then I will be out of the out of the rural location I'm in and into the city for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think I'm often thinking ahead. I'm flighty and I'm impulsive. And so it's hard for me to sit with something. It's hard for me to sit with this um, sense that 
that this is where I am now and this is where I need to be. Um, mm. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn to be that person, but it doesn't, it doesn't come naturally to me. I'm kind of, yeah, I'm a busy brain. I relate. I love, I loved <laughs> in your book and I love that you've repeated just now about um, how the online world and this community of women writers, um, mothers, some as some of them as well, um, mm-hmm. can feel like it opens up your world. So you're sat alone at your laptop and yet this this online community makes you feel like you're part of something really big. It's so powerful and I, I really feel that too. I really feel it. And I also um, feel like I need to be better at advocating for people like us who are hidden away um, in terms of things like um, so when you do write a book it's really hard to promote your book if you're a full-time carer in any capacity Um, even harder if you don't live in London and so all of these events that now are not being hybrid anymore and are, are not online you know that makes it that makes it so much harder to hear the voices of of people like us, you know, um, and, you know, disabled people, um, people on low incomes, all of that. I just feel like it's increased accessibility and inclusion, hasn't it? The, you know, yes. the ability to do stuff online. And I, and I think we need to work harder to, to make sure that that stays. Otherwise we're only hearing the same old voices, aren't we? Which is mm-hmm. not good. Mm. Mm, definitely. Well, I love the sound of your dream thanks however <laughs> whenever it may uh, <laughs> come into being yeah um, I might be like 85 by then but you know that's that's okay isn't it 85 okay. red lipsticks like around Cambridge that sounds that sounds good to me that's a dream <laughs> and I, I hope that you get your bestseller and that that opens any doors you would like it to open thank you thank you so much for talking home with me Caro thanks so much for having me I've really enjoyed it Annie thank you Thank you so much for listening. If you would like more from Caro, you can find her on Substack and on Instagram, both linked in the show notes. Goodbye.